0: The Indians who cultivate the cochineal and who go by the name of nopaleros, especially those who live around the town of Oaxaca, follow a very ancient and a very extraordinary practice, that of making the cochineal travel. In place of preserving the insect in the rainy season in the interior of their huts, the Indians place the mother cochineals, covered with palm leaves, by beds in baskets made of very flexible reeds. These baskets, or canastos, are carried by the Indians on their back as quickly as possible to the mountains of Istepeje, above the village of Santa Catalina, at nine league distance from Oaxaca. The mother cochineals produce their young, by the way. On opening the canastos, they are found full of young cochineal, which are distributed on the nobles of the Sierra. They remain there until the month of October, when the rains cease in the lower regions. The Indians then return to the mountains in quest of the cochineal, with the purpose of replacing it in the nopaleries of Oaxaca. The Mexican, in this way, withdraws the insects from the pernicious effects of the humidity in the same manner as the Spaniard travels with his merinos from the cold.
1: Hi, I'm Alexa Sand.
0: And I'm Ian McInnes.
1: And this is Real Fantastic Beasts.
0: Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today.
1: So, Ian, this passage you just read is really interesting because it describes indigenous people in the Americas caring for some kind of beetle, I think, in the way that Spaniards care for their merino sheep, namely transhumans, taking them up into the mountains during a particular season of the year and then back down into the lowlands for harvesting.
0: Exactly. They're domesticated animals, these little creatures. And I'm excited today because we're going to talk about some of these essentially domesticated insects in both the Middle Ages and then in the Renaissance. And they were not always well understood at the time. And they are still, I think, not particularly well noticed or understood. Yet you have these Indigenous peoples for whom they are the center of a a vibrant and long-lasting practice Going back centuries, very complex, requiring a great deal of skill and management. And yet they are fantastic creatures who have almost vanished in some ways from the very moment of their appearance in in Western Europe. They were always problematic. But there's also insects from the Middle Ages that are very similar. So we get to talk about those today.
1: Absolutely, that's true. What's so interesting about these insects, and all of the insects we'll be talking about today belong to an order of insect known as Hemiptera, or the true bugs. All of these scale insects, whether your cochineals, your New World scale insects, or the oak scale insects that I'll be talking about, or even the lac beetles that we'll refer to, these are very small, but a very diverse group of bugs. Actually, Hemiptera in common parlance is what we call the true bugs. These, these little bugs, you know, they play a really disproportionate role in human history, given their individual small size. So they are kind of tiny giants, and in that sense, really fantastic.
0: I think so, for sure. So one of the things that the, the reasons we'll be talking about them, one of the things that these insects have in common is that they often have a red pigment in their bodies.
1: Exactly. And we can go back all the way to the Bronze Age. We can talk about, even before that, the Upper Paleolithic. There's evidence that people understood that these little scale insects, these true bugs, at least the Mediterranean ones, prey on oak evergreen oaks that grow around the mediterranean there are a couple different varieties these small bugs the females which don't fly they just sort of attach by their mouth parts onto the trees and then feed on the sap of the trees when they're impregnated by the males who do fly but actually have no mouth parts so they only live long enough to basically impregnate the females the females produce these little tiny eggs that are bright red that sort of surround the outside of the abdomen of the bug. It looks like tiny little seeds. These insects, the pigment there was being used as early as the Upper Paleolithic because there's some evidence of it in graves and in cave paintings. But the first time it's actually mentioned is in a Sumerian tablet of about 3000 BCE, which gives instructions on how to use these bugs to dye wool red. So it's one of the oldest natural dyes that we know of. I think that's so cool. So cool, yeah. So by the time you get to the Middle Ages, it's a widespread practice. The word that medieval Europeans used for these bugs is kermis, K-E-R-M-E-S. And that actually comes from a Persian or possibly Turkish word, kermes, which is both a color word, it means a sort of bright crimson red, and also the dye made from the insects. So it's both a material word and kind of a conceptual word.
0: Is it also a word for the insect itself, right? I mean, well, because that, I think we use that yeah. today, right? We we, we talk of a, a Kermes as an insect. Did they refer to the insect that way or just to the dye and the
1: color? It's not clear because every source that we have talking about this color of red and it's, and it's, you know, I guess what I'm saying, like, there's no independent text that just talks about the beetles. There's only the discussion of the color that's derived from their bodies. It's that a that is different.
0: so interesting.
1: And actually like a huge part of the Western European vocabulary for words that describe different shades of red comes from this word. So like the whole almost not the entire vocabulary of red, but even reds that weren't made from the bodies of these bugs, even those reds sometimes have names derived from various words having to do with the bugs. So let me explain this a little better. Think about some of the words that we have for red, like crimson.
0: Right, or vermilion, or scarlet, or what what other red words do we have?
1: Well, let's just start with those. Crimson, I think, is the most obvious one that comes from Kermis.
0: Kermis. Mm -hmm. Does Carmine Um, also come from Kermis?
1: Yes, carmine too. So then I'll get to scarlet in a minute because that's got its own whole story. But vermilion is a really interesting one because vermilion is used in you know medieval painter's manuals and early Renaissance painter's manuals to describe a very specific type of mineral red derived from mercury. So not an organic red at all. Mm. However, the word vermilion comes from the Latin word for worm or little worm, vermiculum. And in classical Latin and in early medieval Latin, the term vermilion is also used interchangeably with the kermes, derived words for this dye stuff derived from the bodies of these little insects. And remember that the actual source of dye are these eggs that look maybe like little worms. So it's like this red stain spreading out from the bodies of these tiny animals through the entire vocabulary of talking about the color red in European languages. I find it fascinating.
0: Let me get this straight. So, like when they say kermes, they're talking about the color and the pigment, which also happens to come from the insect. But when they're talking about vermilion, they're talking about a color and a pigment that doesn't come from the insect. But but act but the word refers to the insect. So the, exactly. the, the bug least, is the bug is in there and then not yeah. in there.
1: Well, at least by the 12th century. Now, like in the Carolingian period, when they say vermiculatus, that seems to still be referring to the dye stuff, the the scarlet dye, or I should say the vermilion dye. And I should also say that like color the whole vocabulary of color in the Middle Ages is a really fascinating topic. I'm currently reading a book um, by Brigitte Buehner called The Mineral and the Visual. And this book is all about gemstones. But one of the points she makes in the book so well is that color, you know, we tend to think of color as a kind of abstraction, almost like think of a Pantone chart. Yes. Pantone yeah. has all yeah. of these different colors. But in a medieval way of thinking about color, color is not an abstraction. It has a kind of materiality and it has a kind of life of its own, I guess you could say. Her argument has to do with gemstones, precious stones, being in a sense, part of a continuum of significant natural phenomena. And that continuum includes animals and plants. So you'll often find a lapidary, which is kind of a medieval descriptive encyclopedia about stones mixed in with a bestiary. And they're not really distinguished as categorically different. They're sort of different in degree rather than in kind. And so in a sense, color is a place where a sort of animal body and a mineral body can overlap I guess you would say
0: that is that is so cool I didn't I had no idea that they combined the two of them but it makes so much sense given many of the things we've been saying on this podcast about animal particularly animal coloration, uh, which is which has been an enduring topic for us.
1: Right. And I mean, getting back to our blue tigers, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe some way in which color participates in thinking about categories would help us sort out this problem that we have as sort of post-enlightenment individuals of wanting to put things into categories, real or fantastic, bird or insect, insect or mineral, you know, <laughs> like, Maybe maybe, if we think in a more fluid way, we're thinking more along the lines of the medieval people or the early modern people. I think they understood the difference. I mean, certainly artists understood the difference between making mercury red and Kermis red.
0: How often do medieval writers talk or, or recognize the the specific source of the color? When they're talking about that color, scarlet or crimson, that they talk about the insect?
1: That's a good question. Most of the time, when people are just, say, in an inventory listing what's in this inventory, they will say Kermes died or, or a ver- Vermiculatus cope or or vestiment or whatever. And, and they don't go into the detail of how it got to be that color. However, there are a number of artists' manuals. Pliny's natural history circulated widely in the Middle Ages too. And in Pliny, when he's talking about color, he has a whole section on color. The first color he addresses is red. And the first sort of process for creating red that he addresses is this dye from the bodies of animals. And then you start to get some artists' manuals in the 12th century, as you move into the 13th, 14th, 15th century, you get more and more sort of detailed descriptions of how to create different kinds of colors, not so much in dyeing, which was the principal use of caramels. Specifically, it's really good for animal fibers, like wool and silk, particularly, so not so good for cotton or linen. You know, to then take that kermes based color and turn it from a dye into a painting medium or a painting uh, pigment, you have to actually precipitate the color out of the dye and then dry it and then mix it with a medium.
0: I'm going to guess that pigments behave very differently when they are being dyed into a wool or silk than they do, you know, in a artist's uh, like a, in a pigment medium for for painting. I mean, things that might be color fast in one situation aren't necessarily color fast in the other, which is would be a huge concern for artists.
1: Yes, absolutely, and also particularly in the case of caramels or crimson when you precipitate it out from the dye, and then mix it with a medium, it takes on, of course, some of the characteristics of that medium. So a more opaque medium, it's going to have kind of a dull pinkish color. But if you mix it with a clear medium, it produces a very clear, bright, vivid red, but translucent. So when people begin painting with oil paint, they could use this very sheer red, it's called a lake. Lakes are just organic pigments that have been precipitated out of dyes and used in painting. And the word lake actually comes from a different kind of red beetle, the lac beetle. The lac beetle is a more common scale insect in,
0: in- Asia. Indochina.
1: Yeah. So like lacquer, it's, it's that beetle <laughs> or that check. Right. So interesting. I mean, one thing that is important is this prestige of the color produced from these insects. So they're these tiny little insignificant looking bugs produce one of the highest prestige colors.
0: Well, it sounds like it's expensive just by virtue of the size of the animal and the difficulty of cultivation.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you have to go out and pick them off the oak trees. Whereas we think of purple as kind of an imperial color in Rome, that particular purple is made from a murix sea snail. And that's a whole other episode, I think. But um, that Tyrian purple is kind of superseded by crimson in the Middle Ages. Charlemagne wore red shoes when he entered the Vatican for his coronation on Christmas Day in the year 800. And Roger II of Sicily had a very, very gorgeous over-the-top coronation mantle of crimson-dyed silk embroidered with gold and silver. It still exists. It's just absolutely the most fabulous item of clothing
0: Is it it not embroidered with lions?
1: Yes, two lions um, sort of facing each other, attacking uh, antelopes, I think. Um, So we'll come
0: back to that. We'll We'll get to go do that again when we do lions.
1: Oh, for sure. And I mean, it's one of my favorite things. It's unbelievably well preserved for a medieval piece of cloth. But scarlet, yeah. too, like the word scarlet, is a very specific word to begin with. At some point, it emerges as a description for a very fine, soft wool, generally made in England, almost always dyed red with caramace.
0: It's so interesting that we're getting the insect is getting deployed as color, but then also as as the cloth, which would you know, like this progressive distance from the animal itself. But I wanted to ask you, in medieval England... Are they dyeing their wool this color in England or is it English wool shipped abroad, redyed with the Caramace abroad and then sold as scarlet?
1: Ooh, good question. And I don't have the answer right off the top of my head because it's a little unclear. The period that I'm most familiar with, the later Middle Ages, the economic model was to export the wool to the Low Countries, to places like Bruges and Ghent. That was where it would then be transformed. I think there is some evidence of Anglo-Saxon dyeing, so I don't want to like rule that out.
0: One reason I asked is that I know that in the early modern period, they are very interested in England in capturing some of the money that they're losing by simply exporting raw wool for processing elsewhere. So they're mm-hmm. intensely interested in developing a dyeing industry in England that can compete internationally, <laughs> which means they are extra, perhaps extra interested in red dye.
1: And also, I mean, these insects, the real beasts, live on a very specific and limited number of oak species. And those are evergreen oaks that only grow around the Mediterranean basin, basically. These oaks today are an endangered species. Likewise, the bugs themselves are endangered. Red in the Middle Ages is not just a royal color. So it has this royal significance, right? But Yes. It also has religious significance. Red is the color of Christ's blood. Part of its value and part of the reason why you see it in, for example, liturgical vestments and the sort of traditional cardinals robes or the papal robes is that association with the blood of Christ. In Kabbalistic thinking, um, red is also very important because it's the color of divine judgment and it's the retributive color and it has to be balanced against blue. Blue and red are not really considered opposites, but they work together. It's super interesting to think that our system of color in which red and blue are opposed is not it's that's cultural that red and blue are actually considered very aligned and not just in medieval Jewish thinking and medieval Christian thinking as well. You have the two colors that you'll almost always see the Virgin Mary wearing are either blue or red, because or red. they both symbolize her role as the human mother of Christ, but also as a pure vessel, also as a dispenser of mercy and as a kind judge and as a protector of humanity. So it's all kind of mixed up in there.
0: It is. So cardinals who wear red are then associated with the color, cardinal color, which is red. And Mm -hmm. the bird that you might see on your feeders at this time of year is a cardinal named after the cardinals because the bird is red, and the cardinals are red, and the cardinals are red because of the Kermes bug. It's it's a
1: giant network.
0: Right. We're, We're looking at an animal named after a human wearing red robes formed from colors produced by another animal. Yeah. yeah. What a, what a network.
1: Kermes as you've mentioned, I mean it's an expensive and difficult process to extract this dye. It involves multiple stages of drying the bodies of the, of the insects and sorting them and immersing the resultant powder in a broth of chemicals essentially so it's it's a lot of work and the color is very very valuable as a result it's very expensive and then it has these symbolic properties and and also kind of magical properties that are protective it has medical uses like everything in the middle ages but it's problematic from an economic point of view especially as you have growing demand a growing population growing demand for these beautiful scarlet fabrics. And then 1492 happens. And suddenly the world of possibilities for all kinds of organic dye stuffs expands radically.
0: It does, because news comes back that they have discovered a fantastic red dye. And that that news really takes the dye industry, I guess, or the, the color industry of, of Europe. Uh, By storm. So there's a famous case in Venice, and I should say that there's a great book about this by Amy Butler Greenfield called A Perfect Red, where she tells Mm -hmm. the story very engagingly, and I I do recommend uh, the book. It's a it's a great read. So there's an event in Venice, which is one of the centers of the dye industry, because of course it's a it's a place where you know it's a trading location where some of these red dyes are coming from more Mediterranean locations into Europe, and they're aware of this new dye, so they set up a dye trial they literally put the dye the new dye this one that they've they've gotten head to head with your traditional kermes dye and they also put it up against two other dyes which are from insects in the period very similar they would have been called kermes you know associated with that but one is called armenian red which is a slightly different insect that does not live on an oak tree it lives on another very specific plant And then something called St. John's blood, which comes from Poland. And Mm -hmm. again, another scale insect. This one lives on the roots of a particular plant. So you have to dig up the plant, brush off the insect, replant the plant and hope it survives (laughs) to to get more bugs on it. So they put them head to head against this and they discover that the dye is not only just as good as the traditional Kermes dyes, but it is better in a couple of ways. One is that the cost seems to be about the same per pound, but this new dye can dye 10 times more than oak kermes or Armenian red, and it can dye 30 times more than the same unit of, of St. John's blood. So, of course, they're thinking, well, this, is, this makes economic sense. We can dye 10 times as much, you know, same price per pound. It's cheaper, essentially, per, per unit of actual dye. And then they like it better because it it has it doesn't have as many fats in it as some of the kermes, or the, like the Armenian red, which have a lot of lipids in them from the insects. And apparently lipids will interfere with the ability of a dye to dye particularly silk. So a dye that doesn't have a lot of fat in it is more effective. And it produces a very, a very similar color, so they like that. So this product, of course, coming from the New World is yet another insect to die. And this comes from the cochineal insect, another scale insect. But the cochineal insect, it's it's a little different. It lives uh, primarily on the prickly pear cactus, or, well, one species of the prickly pear cactus. Hmm. There are uh, such things as wild cochineal bugs. And I was wondering whether you live in the West, which for those of us in Michigan sort of counts as anything out West. <laughs> which means you might have prickly pear cactus somewhere in plantings across campus or maybe you know i don't know do you do you have any prickly pears anywhere that you that you can see
1: They do grow here they're not i mean i'm pretty high in the mountains and it's pretty cold here in the winters so they're not common but they do grow both wild and in people's gardens where they've been planted yeah. I don't know that i've ever seen these particular scale insects on them, but then again, I'm not sure I've actually looked.
0: So next time you encounter a prickly pear, you know, in the warmer months, right? And you know, maybe you'll have to wait till you're say in Phoenix or at a place where it's truly hot. But you will see these little insects on the cactus. And wild cochineal is uh, has a has a sort of a fluffy outer coating. It's like looks like they look like little fluff bugs, or even just mm-hmm. like little tufts of fluff that sure. you can see on the cactus. So if you pass a cactus and it looks like it's got some little tufts of fluff on the skin, that's probably wild cochineal and mm-hmm. it's it's everywhere. Wild cochineal is very resilient. It can tolerate a wide range of humidity and a wide range of temperature, but it is not nearly as productive of the red dye as the cochineal that was being cultivated in Mexico and had been domesticated for centuries and centuries. So lots and lots of selective breeding produced an insect that was very specific to what it could eat, and also uh, very vulnerable to predators and to humidity and temperature. It was a very fragile um, bug. But it's still, it's everywhere. And it's kind of neat to think that the you know, the ancestors of, of cochineal are visible across the United States in many locations, I think. Yeah. So you'll have to look for that. Um, and yeah. you know, decide whether you're willing to dye your hands red should you pick up one of those bugs <laughs> because they do have a lot of red dye in them.
1: Hmm. Interesting. You know, there are a lot of people out here in Utah who are pretty heavily into natural dyeing and collecting natural materials to dye their homegrown sheep's wool or whatever it is they're dyeing. Sometimes it's alpaca. I should ask some of these people if they've ever gone out and gotten a harvest of cochineal bugs.
0: So this was like a longstanding part of indigenous cultures. The cactus was called the, it's the nopal cactus, which was itself a really important part of the Nahuatl language cultures. It was just like a very important part of that. But the Spanish were sort of slow to kind of recognize what they know the value of what they saw. They were much more interested in gold and in kinds of farming that they could quickly do with lots of essentially enslaved labor. And they it took a, a while for them to kind of recognize that cochineal was an important product. But they did begin shipping it back. And then the, the minute, of course, that it got to Europe, it created this intense demand for it. The Nahuatl language for the dye is, I may I'm not be pronouncing this correctly, but uh, no which means the blood of the nopal, which is the cactus. And they had a special word for the, the wild cochineal, zalno zol-no-c- There we go.
1: Super interesting, the etymology there, because cochineal is, you know, obviously a Spanish word. I think it's co- cochinilla. And that is derived from ultimately from a Latin word, which is coquinus, which means. Scarlet colored, and cochinus is the name for for, for kermes. In so yes, and they were
0: they were associated with each other uh, to expected. some extent.
1: They're not very closely related insects. I mean, they are related in that they're both scale insects. They both belong to this
0: hemiptera group. the The cochineal bug looks a little bit like um, like a, a mealy bug. Or there's a whole bunch of names for this all across the country: potato bug, mealy bug. Uh, Popoly those those kind of things. yeah. yes, looks looks a lot a little bit like that. And there's an alternate uh, etymology because apparently the word for that in Italian is cucinilia. so that there's this other idea that maybe they were called that because of the way that the, the they looked as well as but so you've got like two different parallel etymologies, one going back to the Latin. Yeah. But, you know, people quickly called it, you know, Indian kermes, right? Because they're thinking, oh, well, we have kermes, now we have Indian kermes, and it's way better, and we want more of it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're associating it as an animal product initially. And part of the reason is that the cultivation was so complex, and required so much kind of like careful attention. And that story that I gave you at the beginning, you mentioned the word transhumans, right, which is really kind of like elaborate form of pastoral farming or domestication when you move your sheep around and they're moving the bugs around. It wasn't a product that the Spanish could very easily take over. It takes you know a lifetime to kind of learn how to be a no pole farmer. And it was often very small scale establishment. So it didn't lend itself to large scale farming. It wasn't something that you could easily train lots of enslaved people from all over to do. And it was also just very difficult. Anyone who's ever kept live animals realizes that they're liable to die. I mean, like live animals are, it's a difficult form of farming. You have to know a lot about how to keep the animals alive. I think insects are particularly like that because naturally Insects go have a very wild range of population sizes. Insects are resilient mainly because they can repopulate from small numbers. So that's why some summers there's tons of mosquitoes and some summers there's not. Uh, but if you're farming them, you want a steady supply. So the Spanish when they were recording these indigenous cultures cultivation, the primary attention is in the predators and how do you protect your your bugs mm. from all the different predators that there are and that includes lizards, and turkeys and spiders and like all sorts of things that the the little nopal farmer, um uh, the nopalero has to go out there every day and make sure that their their you know precious cochineal mo- mothers are not getting eaten by all these different uh, parasites.
1: It's interesting that they understood that these were the female insect, the mothers.
0: They did. You know? Yes. That knowledge took a long time to get through to Europe, I have to say.
1: I guess maybe the eggs were the giveaway. If you understood them as eggs, but gosh, how do you sex a, yeah. a bug?
0: <laughs> how do you sex a? <laughs> well, uh, it they actually, it's not the egg. I don't. If, if it's the eggs of Kermes, it's not the eggs of the uh, cochineal that are the where you get the dye from. They're getting it from the actual bodies of the insect itself. So they would simply dry the insect and the the abdomen, which has all of the red dye in it would remain and all the other parts of the bug would, which were small to begin with, you know, the head and the legs, which basically just turned to dust and blow, blow away. And so the shipped form of cochineal is basically thousands upon thousands upon thousands of the bodies of these insects, very small bodies. And uh, they would ship that back and it looks like grains or berries. And they had that uh, notion, even for, I think, Kermes, they would call it uh, grana, right? The grains of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But that's what you ship back. So it, it, it required a lot less processing than uh, the Kermes dye, which was one of the reasons why it was also mm-hmm. you know, a, a popular dye, right? You essentially take the bug, almost got your dye ready to go right mm-hmm. there. You don't have to do much to it. So there was a demand for this, uh, and immediately when there's a demand, they had people were trying to produce more of it. They were trying to accelerate the process of drying, which re- was always resulted in worse pigment. Um, and they would, they you know, there was adulteration. So there's a lot of sort of concern about preserving the the quality of this pigment going back uh, to Europe. But it became a large part of the luxury trade. They were producing Mexico, and it's only Mexico really is producing in 1557. 50,000 pounds of cochineal by mm. 1574 it's up to 150,000 pounds so that's increased three times in in 25 years and it is fantastically valuable and therefore it's one of the main kinds of pirate loot from the period that oh, they wow. would expect to find you know yes this is what you would this is what you want to capture famous case i guess the biggest capture was Essex who is one of queen elizabeth's favorites and as you know, her, her favorites also uh, had sidelines as pirates often out there under, under her yes, uh, jurisdiction. Please. Yes, yeah. Uh, in 1597, he captured uh, 55,000 pounds of cochineal in one go, which is like maybe 30% of the entire trade for the year. It was worth 80,000 pounds, which is about $18 million today, although... Can't really do the, the the comparisons. It was worth so much, of course, that it was instantly nationalized. The, the Queen says, okay, so thank you. This is great. We really need this dye because we're trying to improve our dye, you know, our dyers. We're going to use all this dye. We're going to put it away, store it, and then we won't be vulnerable to the vicissitudes of the trade and the fact that Spain sometimes withholds cochineal in order to uh for political effect. So they think that great we have all this this stuff. But she did give ex- Essex the sort of the right to an enormous bounty from it, and the right to buy cochineal at a reduced rate, which of course he did instantly.
1: And let but me they ask, had used
0: up most of that cochineal not very long after that. Yeah.
1: So yeah, that was, I guess, going to be my question: like, do you see a sort of uptick in the the fashion culture of red? Like, did red become the was red the new black? Is what I'm asking. Like, did red become suddenly <laughs> a more popular? choice when it came to sort of high end fashion and i guess the only way you would know this would be from either descriptions of pageants and what people were wearing at court or maybe portraits
0: you can you can you can tell from portraits it was already a high end color yes. right when it was kermes itself right mm-hmm. so that was already but but cochineal is slightly less expensive it's still an expensive dye what it, so what it means is that the, the red is, per, is moving further down in the social scale, but then also the desire to dress people up in red is increasing. So the most famous example, well, the, the cardinals were dressed in cochineal dyed robes by decree of the church after a certain point, right? So they said from now on, all of our cardinal robes will be dyed with this new dye, which is so awesome. And part of that is that the dye itself was developed even after it came back. So there's a guy named Rebel uh, in the early 1600s realized that if you if you combine he was a kind of a alchemist and kind of experimenter, uh, mm-hmm. and he realized that if you combine cochineal with tin, you can get even more vibrant colors. And the most famous impact, of course, is that the British red coat. The soldier, the, the habit of dressing their, their soldiers in red comes from the advent of the, of the cochineal dye and their desire to like use that color to mark their troops.
1: That must be eighteenth century though
0: right no I mean it begins earlier, but yes, what? I mean certainly eighteenth century is where the red coat becomes you know famous and you have the thin red line, and like you know it, it becomes a sort of the marker, it even becomes the marker of British Empire in which they would think of sort of like they would mark things that belong to Britain in red on maps as a result of the red coat, so it becomes associated very firmly with the British Empire, but it goes back to this desire to 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 mark the soldiers in red. Most soldiers probably would not be wearing coats dyed in Cochineal itself, but the officers would because they would have enough money to do that.
1: How long did this sort of Mexican monopoly on Cochineal last?
0: A very, very, very long time. So if we look at the kind of the natural history of Cochineal, you can see see how and why the, the monopoly lasted as long as it did. Because there was a huge confusion as to whether or not cochineal was an animal or a plant, and mm-hmm. even early Spanish sources were were confused. So the very the first guy to describe the prickly pear in 1526 doesn't even mention cochineal. And then uh, that's 1526. 1535, the guy Oviedo goes back, redoes, you know, republishes a new work, and this time he does mention cochineal, but for some reason. He says that it comes from the fruit of the prickly pear, which which is a red fruit, yes, you know, but no, it will yeah. not dye yeah. your clothing. Well,
1: that uh, makes sense.
0: Yeah. So he said, Oh, it's the you know, it's the fruit of the prickly pear. And everyone's like, oh, that's that's fine. That makes sense. Sure, sure. Like well, we're we're down with that. That that makes absolute sense that, that that would be the case. And then some sources, some early Spanish sources say, well, okay, it is it is worms, meaning insects, because you know, as as we know from discussing this uh, worms and insects the same category but in 1554 Salazar said well it's produced by a worm but the worm is made from the cactus right the cactus automatically add, you know just produces these insects that then have the color in them so it's not a it's it's not a a separate animal really it's an animal produced by the cactus which
1: I mean that, is that completely familiar yeah that parthenogenic um, explanation for the existence especially you know, larvae, but I think that was sort of a standard explanatory mechanism.
0: So there is a guy in 1577 who correctly describes the whole thing, and he puts it in a manuscript, which is taken back to Spain, seized by the government, and then pretty much disappears until the 19th century. So yes, that would have done it had it been printed. The very first account that actually sort of describes what we would say is going on is Jose de Acosta in 1590. So that's printed, that's really widely circulated but by this mm-hmm. time there's a whole lot of suspicion about just about the whole thing and also about spanish sources because mm-hmm. the spanish are very cagey about a lot of things that are going on in the new world and mm-hmm. you know they've said it's they've said it's a plant now they say it's an animal right like do we even believe them mm-hmm. and hacklett the famous english travel kind of compiler includes an account two different accounts or uh, well one one account from uh, thompson who basically just straight out says, it's a berry. And I mean, Cochineal's just a berry. And then mm. Champlain, the French explorer, also mm-hmm. comes out and says, nope, it's a berry. I know it's a berry. So much so that the English settlers, when they were sent out, had very specific advice to look out for Cochineal berries, wherever they were. As late as 1668, the Royal Society says that Cochineal comes from the fruit of the prickly pear and asks researchers to look for other, quote, vegetables of tincture, right? Look out for vegetables that are going to, you know, vegetable dyes. Which, okay, you know, is so-, so
1: interesting because what we know about vegetable dyes and early modern and medieval people knew this well, especially if they were in the business, is that vegetable dyes are not, you don't have like a red berry makes a red dye. You have a, a sort of ugly yellowish plant makes this beautiful color of blue you know, right. (laughs) They're not not true. The the colors they present are seldom the colors that they produce.
0: Yes. And as we know, chemically speaking, colors can change, you can change colors radically just by combining minerals and plants and acids and metals and
1: and metal salts. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, they, I mean, they had been combining cochineal with alum as a in in order to make it set better in in the cloth. And that actually increases the color too. So Mm -hmm. here's the problem. You say like, you know, if you go back, you say like, hang on, the the cochineal that they were getting was the bodies of insects, right? Thousands and thousands of insects. Each pound of cochineal had something like 70,000 little cochineals in it. That's how Mm -hmm. small they are. So you think, couldn't they just look at the dye and say like, huh, looks like a bunch of, you know, insect parts to me, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but they didn't. They didn't do that partly because you know magnifying glasses are weak, but it also has a lot to do with what they expect to see. They see what they expect to see.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and uh, Robert Boyle, the English scientist, asked a guy named Leeuwenhoek, who had a famous microscope. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes you learn about Leeuwenhoek when you learn about microscopy and right, the first mm-hmm. microscopes. Right? Leeuwenhoek's right. microscopes were amazing. He observed like meticulous things. So Boyle said. Leeuwenhoek, use your microscope, which is the best ever, and check out the Cochineal and tell us what you see. Leeuwenhoek With- looks through the microscope, says, yep, they're berries. I see berries. I he <laughs> yep, oh. He said that. Yeah. So he said that. Boyle said, okay, try it again. Tell me what you really see. Is this your final answer? <laughs> and Leeuwenhoek looks back through the microscope and says, like, hang on. Wait a second! These are insects, and he describes them perfectly. Eventually, in 1704, you like you uh, kind of get images published, uh, like microscope images, which, by the way, are still not widely accepted by lots of people because first they they distrust what microscopes are seeing, and also you know you have cases where the guy looks through one day and sees a berry, and he looks through another day and he sees the insect, but essentially they were. were seeing the 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 bodies of the insects uh and you know if you cut the uh the body open you can see some eggs inside uh, which is really a tribute to how amazingly when microscope was and in the eggs you know he could see the beginnings of the baby cochineals which put an end to the idea that cochineals are born from the cactus itself you would think should they be accepted however Still widely not accepted. People still think of it as an animal product. Um, and the, the famous example of which it was pretty much finally agreed by everybody that this was an animal is, has to do with a bet that a guy named Melchior de Rooster had with a friend. So Melchior said, I'm sure they're animals. His friend said, I'm sure they're plants. You know, it was the old debate. We all talk about this. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Melchior said, I bet you anything, right? It's an animal. Let's have a bet. And Melchior went to a friend in Spain who went to friends in Mexico and got all these testaments, including testaments from the people who, from the Nopaleros, right, about their, how you grow cochineal, um, all of it, brought back all the testaments. And the bet was solved by an independent tribunal that like sat down and reviewed all the documents. And they said, these are really, this is really compelling. The microscope stuff, not so much, but like, these are the people, these people know what they're talking about. It's clearly an animal. Even at that point, though, they sort of wondered how can it be an animal? There's only you know, like these are the these are clearly female animals that got eggs in them. There's no male cochineals, right? You can't have an animal without a male. Uh, maybe they're all female. You know that old saw that they would do with everything, including tigers. <laughs> you know, or like maybe we're back to the idea that they're just somehow produced by the cactus and then go on having their own young after that. Whatever, and that has to do with the fact that the sources from Mexico, the growers. Talked about a butterfly that would go back and forth over the cochineals, uh, you know, and then and it was an important part of the process. But the butterfly was a false translation of what was originally written as the flying husband. And the and the male cochineal is really, really small. The female's small, the male is even smaller, tiny, tiny little fly, and very easily missed. They don't live yeah. long when they stop eating and turn into an adult male. That's it. All they do is breed and die, so they're only around for you know, like mayflies, right, for like a day or so.
1: Right, and so in that they're similar to the Kermes males, which are also extremely small, winged, and small, hard to see creatures. They're basically just flying sperm wagons, I guess you could call them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you combine this natural history where nobody seems to know much about these 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 creatures, even that they're animals at all. And you, yeah. you can understand how long it took to begin to break any kind of monopoly on it. They weren't particularly worried. The Spanish worried a lot about losing monopolies to things, but they weren't particularly worried about losing the Cochineal monopoly because... They them you know, the Spanish themselves couldn't grow it. They they had to rely on indigenous peoples to produce it. And Cochineal were so fragile. They they, they thought like, you'll just never take it anywhere. They're just going to die, right? You, and they only eat this one cactus. Like, how's that going to happen? So it really wasn't until like after our period that Cochineal was grown anywhere else other than than Mexico itself.
1: And then I imagine now, it like, must have been a relatively short period of time between that and the introduction of Alizarin crimson which is the artificial dye that replaced essentially carmine in both painters boxes you know paint boxes and and in the dyeing process for
0: could be although as <laughs> like, cochineals is uh, still being produced and used as a dye uh the yes, I've, uh,
1: heard that, I've heard that mcdonald's strawberry milkshakes are are actually not vegetarian oh. for that reason
0: yeah, I am I'm am, I'm am sure they are. Today, you'll see it on the label if you see carmine or natural red 4 or crimson lake, right? Or E120. Those are all names for cochineal in food products. Burt's cool. Bees has it.
1: I'm going to go look for L'Oreal.
0: something
1: carmine in. maybelline. <laughs> yeah.
0: I would bet if you have lipstick, it is almost certainly has carmine in it.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Dannon's Dan's fruit on the bottom all has has cochineal. And and therefore, you know, they're, they're not vegan. uh, And people who somehow object to eating bugs for whatever reason, you know, whatever non-vegan reason also don't like the idea of cochineal because like, oh, ick, ick, I'm having a ground up bug in my lipstick. I don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) But it was used as a dye for, for a very long time.
1: Yeah, it takes us right back to our sort of the medieval worldview in which there's not really a huge difference between, I mean, there is a difference, obviously, but like animal, mineral, vegetable, that's a continuum of under the sort of aegis of created matter right it's not right it's not like part of the problem that we have with eating bugs or or thinking that we're consuming something with insects in it is sort of categorical problem the fact that we have them in a non-food category or a taboo category whereas in plenty of cultures insects are on the menu and like i've always found it weird that people will eat shrimp but not a cricket or a grasshopper, whatever, like I was at a taco place once. And it's one of these uh, Jose Andres restaurants in Washington, DC. And you can get different kinds of tacos, including shrimp tacos, and grasshopper tacos, or cricket tacos. tacos. Can't remember which it is, but insect tacos. And people were like, Oh, gross, you're getting the you know, whatever people were getting all excited about eating the Insect tacos, but I'm like, but if you're going to eat a shrimp taco, I, I don't see the difference, honestly. They're not that different. Shrimps are just the bugs of the ski.
0: Yeah. Appearance of red on flags often comes <laughs> goes back to um, Cochineal. is <laughs> probably too expensive just to put on your, your average flag, but uh, okay. the American flag, you know, Betsy Ross's flag would have been Cochineal. The flag flying over Fort Henry or whatever, the the one that sure. led to the national anthem would have been a, like the, the red in that would have been a Cochineal red. So, It it has its implications. And the other really interesting thing to think about is its role in the kind of indigenous production of that dye, because there are plenty of things that happened in the New World where the Spanish seized upon things produced by the indigenous peoples, and those became a source of further destruction to native cultures. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, Cochineal is actually a little different because they never could figure out how to redo that only, only the indigenous peoples could produce it. And the areas where it was produced tended to have families that got to stay together. They had greater access to resources because they were producing a very valuable product. Mm-hmm. And some people have said that the reason that Oaxaca is today one of the most diverse regions in Mexico and one with a very strong indigenous culture has to do with the fact that they had cochineal to sell, hmm. that Cochineal made them more resilient in this the awful storm of things that happened to Native cultures as a part of colonialism.
1: Interesting, too, because it's also a city really associated with the arts and with um, not just the conservation of traditional arts and Indigenous art forms, but also generally with the sort of art world. It's a place in Mexico that is really known for its, its university is known for its fine arts programs, and it produces a lot of people who work in the art world internationally. I
0: say that's that's all thanks to the cochineal bug.
1: Yeah, a really fantastic little insect.
0: A very fantastic insect, and a bizarre example of the way that an insect that is so important economically, artistically culturally is not even recognized as a creature in mm-hmm. much of the period that it's being used as a creature. So sure. on the one hand we have fantastic creatures that we don't believe in that they believed existed. Here we have a creature that we know existed and they used but didn't believe in. Right? They they officially disbelieved in this while still accepting, you know, unicorns and dragons. The cochineal worm, I don't believe it. Ridiculous. <laughs>
1: It's definitely a fruit
0: by the way, so if you have if you have questions for us, you can either email them to producers at Real Fantastic Beasts or you can ask them on Twitter. but that is all we have for today
1: So long as there is a Twitter
0: so long as there is a Twitter. <laughs>